0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 17. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament, so after you get through the minor prophets like Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all those ones, uh, then we'll be in the gospel of Matthew. And we'll also eventually make our way over towards um, the book of Romans, chapter 6, but our primary text this morning will be Matthew 3. Also, maybe one thing I want to make really clear, when Pastor Roger mentioned Caitlin wasn't feeling well, she has the flu. She's not pregnant. Just, (laughs) just, just, oh, no, no, I just thought, okay, just, just so we don't have to, like, sit there wondering, so this way we can really give our attention to what's before us. Uh, Before we read God's word together, let's pray. God, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. By your Holy Spirit and by your word, may you illumine our very souls to the words that you have to speak to us. May you make our paths of discipleship clear. May you make your voice known to us and your ways made unto us that we may pursue you into your perfect likeness as we serve as your servants here on the earth. Lord, bless us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to set this onion out here. But it's for later. So we'll set it there and leave it there. And you can just wonder for a while. How are those New Year's resolutions going? After all, we're one week in, and uh, last week Pastor Audrey preached thinking about New Year's resolutions and how we even come to them not from a place of shame, but maybe of of improvement, of pursuit. How are they going now that we are one week in? If you use a search engine like Google or Bing and just type in New Year's resolutions, what you get now at this point in the year is long lists of ways to actually get back on track with your resolutions or how to make them easier to follow or steps to actually make the resolutions you made happen. It's almost as if at this point what we're looking for is, I've already messed up, how do I get back on track? Or maybe in a matter of conscience, can I reduce my original resolutions to something more attainable? That can bring about a little bit of guilt, maybe some shame that we've barely made it a week, and some of us have already messed up. Or maybe some of us didn't make any resolutions in the first place. But it's from the beginning point that I wonder, where did the resolutions come from? The number one year-in, year-out resolution has to do with changing your appearance or physical weight or health our resolutions often come from areas that we are displeased with ourselves. There's also a lot of resolutions around finding a new job this year or changing our circumstances, our setting. Some of them are about finance, but the number one year in, year out is changing that about us of which we are displeased. And I wonder for us as Christians... How often our New Year's resolutions come from a wondering of, is God displeased with me? Is God displeased with me? And so, right and good resolutions like, I need to pray more, I need to read my Bible more, are fitting resolutions. And I love New Year's because it is a time to reflect on the past year to look forward to the next. But where do those resolutions come from? What's their point of origin? Because if we think theologically, there is something very disturbing about making New Year's resolutions from a position of believing that God is displeased with us. Because if we believe that God is displeased with us, there is no way that we can impress God or or prove ourselves worthy to God or please God through all of our right actions and good doings and good deeds. If God is displeased with us, we can't fix it. Even our greatest works, our greatest acts of righteousness are but filthy rags. If God is displeased with us, we can't fix it. And this is a disturbing thought. This leaves us with great amounts of shame and unfixable shame because if we think that we can be so good that we will impress God who is holy and majestic and honorable and mighty, we're kidding ourselves. We cannot impress God or prove ourselves to God. What then is our hope? Especially if there's just some nagging part of us that wonders if God is displeased with us. What is our hope? I would like to suggest this morning that one of the greatest compass-bearing direction points for our hope is the baptism of Jesus. And to explain that, I'd like to ask this simple question, Christ's baptism, who is this for? Who is Christ's baptism for? Because if you consider it, it's a little bit interesting that Jesus goes to John and asks to be baptized because even John thinks this is strange because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. As Pastor Roger mentioned, repentance is turning away from sin, turning towards something else. And Jesus goes to John and asks to be baptized. This is strange to John and this should strike us as just a wee bit strange as well. Jesus, who is without sin, has no sin to turn away from. Jesus, who is God's Son, is already in perfect communion with the Father, so he has nothing to turn differently towards. Yet Jesus comes to John and asks him to be baptized. Who is this for? It's not for Jesus to have a repentance moment. For Jesus has nothing to repent from is part of Christ's baptism for us? One of um, my favorite preferences is to find older commentators because I think the old classic ones are just a little bit more, I don't know, unconcerned with everything else going on, and they're just trying to give us good history and setting. And one of those is William Barclay. And in his articulating of why exactly was Jesus baptized, he gives us this little uh, input, which I find very helpful. Why should the Christ, the Messiah, be baptized? There is one very simple and very vital reason. It is the fact that never in all history before had any Jew submitted to being baptized. The Jews knew and they used baptism But only for proselytes, converts, who came into Judaism from some other faith or from no faith at all. It was natural that the sin-stained, polluted proselyte should be baptized. But no Jew had ever conceived that he, a member of the chosen people, a son of Abraham, assured of God's salvation, could ever need baptism. Baptism was for sinners, And no Jew ever conceived of himself as a sinner shut out from God. Now, for the first time in their national history, the Jews realized their own sin and their own clamant need of God. Never before had there been such a unique national movement of penitence and of search for God. Now, consider, if Barclay is right, which I think he is, Jewish baptisms didn't happen. That was only for people coming in. But now Jesus is getting baptized. Jesus, who is a Jew, is getting baptized. Is that because by the very act of Jesus getting baptized, we recognize that those who share in Christian baptism are not being baptized into Judaism. We are being baptized into Christ. And for Christ to be baptized is of groundbreaking significance to show that something new is happening. Something different has occurred. That even Jesus, who is a Jew, is being baptized. This is not normal Jewish custom. This is the sign of turning towards something different. Jesus himself was being baptized when we are baptized We share in Christ's baptism, not a baptism into the law, not a baptism into Judaism, but a baptism that unites us with Christ. Christ's baptism was a sign and a signal, and that goes out to all of us. And Jesus said, this is to fulfill all righteousness. When John protests, you you can't baptize, I can't baptize you, you need to baptize me. Jesus says, make it so. Let us fulfill all righteousness. And that righteousness reaches back to the words of the prophets being fulfilled. That righteousness reaches all the way back to the earliest covenants that through the line of Abraham, that nation would be blessed to be a blessing. That salvation to all people would come through the Jews and Jesus now is fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus is taking his central and primary place in the trajectory of God's redemptive history for all of us. Jesus' baptism is a turning point. And when we are baptized, we are sharing with Christ in that turning point. It will fulfill all righteousness Righteousness, not just an individual sin or not sin, but righteousness, meaning God's righteousness, has given to us through the whole scope of time. And righteousness only accessible through Christ. Who is Christ's baptism for? Christ's baptism is a sign for us that we have been brought into something altogether different. And it doesn't mean that life will always be easy either. If you look at the context of where Matthew chapter 3 falls right after Christ's baptism, what happens? He's brought into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Being baptized is not a unification with Christ that makes for an easy life. But it is a life that is altogether different that God calls us to. That's the greater scope of context, but even sometimes the grammar Of a text matters. I didn't always appreciate grammar in grade school, but when we read Scripture carefully, when we look for repeated phrases, when we look for who's speaking and how a passage begins and ends, and when we look at who's being spoken to, even the grammar of Scripture will teach us something. And in answer to the question, who is this baptism for? Looking at verse 17 of Matthew 3, a voice from heaven said, "This is my son, whom I love; with him I am well pleased." This is my son whom I love; with him I am well pleased. Who is this pronouncement for? Jesus already knows who he is. Jesus already knows that God is well pleased with him. And yet this the reason I say the grammar matters is the declaration in Matthew's account is third person for Jesus. Now, in Luke, it is second person, and we can talk more about that in Sunday school downstairs, why these gospel accounts differ. But interestingly enough, it's third person that Jesus is spoken of in Matthew. Almost as if this declaration is not to Jesus, although it is about him and it is for him, but it is also for all of us. To know who Jesus is. That God, the heavens opened, which is a sign of divine revelation. The heavens opened and a voice says, This, this is my son, whom I love, my beloved. With him I am well pleased. That was for everyone else to hear. For everyone to hear and know that this baptism of repentance, leading them towards someone, something, it was culminating in Christ. This is my son. As if for the heavens to open and say, this is the one you're looking for. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one who you need to follow if you are to know life eternal. Jesus' baptism was a sign and was a marker, but Christ's baptism was also for us. For we believe that through baptism, we are united with Christ to him in his baptism. We share in Christ's baptism in so much that we are united with Christ that our baptism unites us with his. That when that declaration is made, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, that declaration has also been made to us if we are with Christ, united with him, joined together with him. And it's astounding to me, and hopefully encouraging to all of us, that this declaration is made over Jesus before he actually, like, does anything. Think about it. No miracles have been performed. No sins have been forgiven. No people have been healed at this point in, go- in the Ma- Gospel of Matthew. And yet Jesus is spoken of by God his, as his beloved, the one with whom he is well-pleased. By our standards, Jesus is a little bit of a late bloomer because he's 30, and nothing has happened yet. And yet this declaration is made over Christ, and it signifies the beginning of his ministry. Now, as a millennial, I would say the fact that Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 is both a sign of hope and of grace. It's grace for all of you who kind of hate on millennials and talk about how terrible they are, because it's like, give him a break. Jesus didn't start until he was 30. It's also a sign of hope, not just for young people, but for all of us. If maybe at this point in our life, if our New Year's resolutions were based on the premise that life is not everything that it should be yet. We are not content with our job. We're not content with our family life. We're not content with our love life. We're not content with all of these things. Jesus did not come into the fullness of his ministry until the beginning point of his baptism. And even then, he had to go through his time of trial and temptation. For 30 years, Jesus was greatly faithful to the little things. Being a carpenter's son. Being a resident of his town. Maybe sometimes when we're so discontented with life and think there has to be more to this, there has to be bigger and better things, there has to be more purpose and meaning and value, maybe we need to take a cue from Jesus Who spent 30 years being faithful to the little things until the greatest scope of his ministry and the path towards the cross, which was full of healings and forgiveness of sins, happened? Sometimes we need to just be content with the little things as we await for God's unfolding moment where all is made clear. I find hope in that. The reason I say that we are united to Christ through our baptism to his. Is because Scripture tells us. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are united to Christ's baptism through our baptism. Which means this is for us, this declaration is for us. The starting premise for us as Christians, after our repentance, after our coming to Christ, the starting premise is that God is well pleased with you. God is well pleased with you. Now, maybe there's some resistance for you to accept that. And I encourage you, simply just try this on. Because right away, the first resistance is, wait, no, if I think God is well-pleased with me, that will lead towards apathy. Then no one will try, because already, you're already good to go. I would disagree. Because if you don't believe God is pleased with you, there's no way you can fix that. If you accept that being united with Christ means that God is well-pleased with you, that that is your starting premise, the foundation of your identity, then you will live into that identity. It doesn't make us lazy, it makes us crave wanting to live the way God called us to live. That's why in the history of the church and in the Reformed tradition, as well as the Catholic church, the reading of the law comes after the assurance. That's why Pastor Audrey read the Ten Commandments after we received assurance. Because in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, Paul explains the law is a tutor. The law taught us what sin was, but you are no longer under the law you are under grace for a pharisee to say you are not under the law you are under grace means that the law is a tutor it taught us what sin was but for those who have received christ's assurance of forgiveness for those who are made right with god through christ's death and resurrection god is well pleased with us and now the law becomes a tutor in how we seek to live And so suddenly the Ten Commandments aren't just this long list of rules because God meant to be mean. God said, do not steal because it's so much fun to take other people's stuff and God's just a cosmic killjoy. God said, do not steal because he didn't mean for us to have to carry a whole bunch of keys everywhere. God did not say, do not commit adultery because he was trying to steal all of our fun. God gave this commandment to protect us, to give us the best boundaries possible for our gifts. God said, thou shalt not covet, not because we enjoy being so jealous, but because peace is found in contentment with what God has given us. The law was our tutor that taught us what sin was, but as people who have received assurance and forgiveness, the law is our tutor that reminds us how to live. When we accept our identity as children of God, it doesn't make us lazy. It makes us pursue With great desire to be more and more united with Christ. And when we sin, we mess up, we don't despair. We realize that this is not who we are, this is not part of our identity, and it will get peeled away. This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. You are God's child. Whom he loves, and with you he is well pleased. Live into that. Now for the onion thing. What does it look like to believe that God has forgiven us and that we are seen by God? He does not see our sins. He does not treat us as our sins and transgressions deserve. But God sees the righteousness of Christ in us because we are united to Christ. And yet we still mess up. We still sin. So, which is it? This is where I always get theologically confused, because there's layer upon layer. Because we do good deeds, but that's because Christ has redeemed us, but we also still sin, and that's because we're fallen at our core, but God redeemed us, but originally we were righteous in the first place. Do you see what I mean? There's a little bit of a circle that happens here. We have original sin, but we also have original righteousness, And which one is emerging when? That's why I like onions. Because onions have a lot of layers. And think about it. We could start peeling away layer after layer. The layer of the good things we do, but that's only because of Christ. The bad stuff that we still do because we're not fully sanctified yet. But we will be at one point. In fact, we already are, but we still have sin. You can pull apart an onion indefinitely until there's really no onion left except for a big mess of minced onion. I don't think we're that unlike onions. Consider that onions have lots of layers. And there is no such thing as a genetically perfect onion. Go through your cupboards yourselves if you have onions. They don't all look exactly the same. But God did create the onion all of its layers. And the onion is grown in a sinful world that certainly has experienced the effects of the fall. But God also created the world in which the onion grows. This onion that I just destroyed belongs to God, so I better use it well. The onion belongs to God, all of its layers. And consider what an onion is used for. It is used to enhance food. In fact, it's one of the most common ingredients throughout the world, is onions. When I was the RA of the missions house, that almost bothered me because it always smelled like onions in that kitchen. Because every meal we made had onions in it, I swear. And curry is just an evil substance. I can't get over that one. When people in class say, you smell, it's the curry. Oh, you live in the missions house? That's how you know. But onions are everywhere. everywhere. God created these onions, and they can be used to enhance something and make it better. But also, it can be overpowering. I don't think very many of us would savor taking a big bite of an onion, and I'm not going to do that for you now, because I might not recover from it. But I do know that onions used well enhance. Onions used not well destroy This is very similar to when Jesus used the analogy of salt and light on the Sermon on the Mount. Just the right amount of salt, perfect. Too much, no good. And just like salt and onions and light, they use themselves. They are depleted. A candle depletes itself as it gives light to a room. Salt gets mixed in and disappears when it enhances a dish. And onions... It's no longer the onions that you are eating, but it is the pot roast or what have you. Onions use themselves up as they make the world a better place. We have been baptized into Christ, which means we are loved by God. God is well pleased with us. And we, like onions, deplete ourselves as servant leaders to make the world a better place. In talking with friends who are skeptics or have left the church, sometimes they felt like the church said, here, take a big bite of this onion. It wasn't quite done in the right way. But onions used well. We use ourselves up. And we do make the world a better place. For we have been baptized into Christ's ministry of self-giving as well. I hope each one of us can be a little bit like an onion this year. To know that our rough edges were still created by God and all of our righteousness was also created by God. And maybe the challenge to consider is what side, what layer of you do people get to see the most of? Is it a good layer or a bad layer? And can you give some grace to yourself to know that every layer was created by God and no layer is irredeemable? The whole onion belongs to God. Every layer of us belongs to God. And maybe those people that bother you oh so much, those toughest people to love in your life, maybe it's those that you're always seeing a nasty layer of, can you find in your heart a spot where you view them as loved by God as well? That there's a layer of them with which God is well-pleased. Which layer are you going to show this year? And which layer are you going to see in other people? In all of this, my Onion friends, let us remember that we are children of God, dearly loved, with whom he is well pleased. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, you have called us to give ourselves over to you and to give ourselves up to you for your kingdom's sake. Lord, give us wisdom this year in remembering that we are united with you. Give us wisdom in giving people the right layer and the right amount of who we are as created by you. Lord, give us wisdom and compassion in seeing those around us in seeing the right layer of them, and to pray even for our enemies and those who persecute us, that they may come to know who you are, and a layer may be peeled away. Lord, we belong to you. We give thanks to you, that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you are well pleased with us.